Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. Hello. Before today's episode, I would like to ask you to please review and rate my podcast because it does help with the ranking and makes it much easier and more visible for people to find. So you would actually be helping individuals like you. Thank you. Hello, Sally. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, I'm so grateful to be here, Paula. Thanks for inviting me. Where are you speaking from? Everyone is at home right now? Yes. My family and I, we came up to the mountains of Colorado. So we're, I'm in Grand Lake and this is actually where I'm staying. It's our little getaway cabin. And so we've been oh. safe and isolated here for weeks. Well, it looks good to me. I, could, I think I could be there isolated for a while. I don't know yes, how long though. <laughs> I know. It's my happy place. And we're, we're close to all kinds of amenities. So it's not like we're not suffering at all. We're just no. in one of the be- most beautiful parts of the world. So it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing your knowledge and your experience with us. Just so our listeners know, Sally Spencer Thomas is a clinical psychologist. She's a co-founder and chair of the United Suicide Survivors International. She's also on the board, executive board of the American Association of Suicidology. But that's a lot. And also you have a podcast as well. Let's start talking about your podcast because I find that we're always searching for new resources in this area. The podcast really covers the scope of Um, everything from resilience to mental health to suicide, including suicide grief. So kind of the broad spectrum of connections to suicide. Yeah, because there are so many issues related to suicide, especially when we talk about mental, mental health. And it's just so many crossroads there. That's right. Yeah. Well, let's let's start talking about uh, your brother. And this is actually what brought you to this area, wasn't it? So can you tell us what happened to him and, and how that prompted you to be involved in suicide prevention? Yeah, actually, my interest in understanding suicide predated my brother's death. Uh, I, the very first conference I ever went to as a graduate student was a conference on suicide. I did my doctoral internship rotation in an ER so I could get more experience in suicide risk assessment. I guess I kind of always had a feeling like I was underprepared for this really important part of being a psychologist. And so I tried to gap fill um, my very first large research project that was published in an FBI manual was on police officers' response to civilian suicide. So I just had all of these kind of academic and research and clinical interests in it. Um, And then in my early part of career, I just decided that I wasn't meant to be a psychologist after all. (laughs) I don't know if if anybody else had had that experience. Like after seven years of graduate school and all this training and money, I was like, oh, this is a wrong fit for my personality. <laughs> I'm much more of a social change person and, a, and like an upward and outward and mobilized projects person. So I was really feeling confined being in an office all day. Um, but I love people's stories and I love learning how what makes people tick and how they change and really helping people through, whether it's a group of people or you know a whole culture, um, through like the hard times of, of our lives. So 
the background wasn't wasted, but it did shift gears. So when in 2004, I was actually working at a university in, in Denver, Regis University, and I was running a leadership development program, which was really a ton of fun and a good use of my psychology degree. Um, and then my whole world was turned upside down because my, my younger brother, who was um, 34 at the time, took his life. And we knew he was in trouble. So we, this was, our family wasn't one of these situations where it totally caught us off guard. We had a number of warning signs that he was in trouble and we were rallying. We were all rallying to help him. Um, my brother was uh, just 34 years old. He had two children. He was kind of at the top of his game uh, as an entrepreneur in the insurance industry. And he was beloved. He had a lot of friends and family who just looked up to him. He was just a light in everyone's life. And he also really fought pretty disastrous depression. He um, was diagnosed with bipolar condition when he was a young person. And uh, he fought it really hard and he managed it really well for the better part of his adult life. Um, but then in the summer of 2004, it just went off the rails. And within a very short period of time, um, he had made a bunch of really disastrous decisions while he was in mania that ruined his family, ruined his work, ruined his finances, and he never recovered from that. He had gone through difficult bouts of depression before and just reached out, got help, got back on his feet, but this one was at a totally different level. Uh, and you know, he came back to our family after being estranged from us for a number of months, and I think he just came back to say goodbye. So he lived in my parents' house his last two weeks and really was a tortured soul, lots of pacing, no sleeping, really agitated, a lot of weight loss. And we tried to surround him as best we could with love. We were so grateful to have him back in our lives and try to connect him to resources. But I think he just came back to bid farewell. Um, and then he was gone. And it was so devastating. So devastating. Was it your first experience with suicide? Um, the first one that was this close for sure, I'd lost a camp friend and a high school friend. Mm -hmm. And then someone while I was at school that I didn't know, but you know, we were a small school, took his life while we were at school. Um, so they were always distressing, um, to know that someone I, I knew of and cared about and all young people, very young, um, you know, teens and early twenties, that this is how their life ended. And it was just mm -hmm. sad, but it was abstract. You know, because mm -hmm. I wasn't yeah. really connected in their lives as much as, you know, my brother. We were very, very, very close growing up. We were best friends in our kind of early teen years. You know, he followed me in high school and college. And then he, you know, he had his own past, but we were always connected is what I mean. Um, we were part of the same fraternity and um, we were just really, really close. So... And, you know, here's what I do. This is what I do. I help people, you know, and I tried. Yeah. I tried with all the skills and tools that I had yes. and we still lost him. So there was just layers of grief and trauma and um, what could I have done? What did I do wrong? Mm -hmm. um, all of that for a long period of time. And then I remember I was probably 18 months in sitting in a suicide loss survivors support group and like this epiphany went off above my head. You know, I was sitting there going, you know what? Somebody needs to do something about this. You know, and then mm -hmm. you have those words, oh, oh, it's me. I need to go do something about this. And I just felt like this really intense calling to go mm -hmm. try to figure something out. And 
that that was it, then I never, I've not looked back, even though it's not been the, the smoothest road. I'm like, well, this is what I was put on this earth to do. Mm -hmm. So I better just keep going. What was the experience of your family at the time, Sally? I mean, did you experience a lot of stigma, a lot of blaming, or was it more comfort? How, how did that impact your family? Yeah, I think our family really pulled together uh, initially really well. And we were very lucky in a number of regards my faith community. So I was the only one of, of my side of the family that was involved in a faith community, but my faith community also rallied around our family, followed up with us for months. The, the service, and this was really before we had any clear guidelines on how to do memorials for mm -hmm. suicide or anything like that. And so a lot, a lot of faith communities get confused or are very stigmatizing and condemning or even disparaging of the deceased that none of that happened it was beautiful it honored his life and the fact that he was so loved and brought so much magic into the world but it did not shy away from the fact that his death was tragic it held those two spaces importantly together um and it was it was a really important place i mean hundreds of people came and, and we all stay connected after that experience for quite some time all my brother's friends and everything I also, because I was in the mental health community, and this isn't a given either, but I was lucky that uh, I had a number of friends who knew yeah, what this sure. would do to our family and also gave us tremendous amounts of support. I had people flying in to, to stay with us. Um, so the initial experience, I would say, was very supportive. We were very public right away. The, my, since my brother was a fairly high-profile business leader, our paper in Denver. It was called the Rocky Mountain News at the time. Did more than just the obituary, did kind of a feature about his life and death. Mm -hmm. And so we were talking about it publicly right out of the gate. Um, I, I did have one colleague in my world of wellness that came to me and said, my gosh, Sally, didn't you see it coming? Wow. And I was like, that's a pretty judgy question. I think he was genuinely curious, but it felt harsh well but that course, was yeah yeah and that, as you said before as mental health professional right i mean i'm sure you yourself asked yourself that question you know you did what you could and you no, oh i definitely saw it coming yeah. i definitely saw it coming i asked him he told me no at that point in time i didn't i wasn't worried his no had a good reason behind it and he had never had an attempt before never had expressed any problems before so the no was good enough for me and mm -hmm. i know stuff now some certain warning signs now that i know are real telltale signs that somebody's close that i didn't know then the main mm -hmm. one being agitation he was very very agitated pacing and, and there is a reason why we mental mm -hmm. health professionals should never treat people we know because mm -hmm. even though we're trained we see the signs we know what the warning signs are but there is such an emotional involvement yeah. And that can really blind us sometimes and, and, That's and right. wish for thinking. If they say no, you want to believe they will. That's right. That's right. And then there was a, a moment in time where I was like, I think I'm going to need to hospitalize him. You know, he had a very difficult weekend and it was just hard. I was told, you're not his shrink, you're his sister, back up, let him mm -hmm. do it. Let him do mm -hmm. his own thing here. And then two days later, he was dead. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, there's, a, there's always hindsight. And who knows, if I had hospitalized him, would have it helped? I don't know. The, the data on forced hospitalization is pretty dismal. So I don't think that would have helped. But 
you know, I, like I said, that was 15 years ago. I have a number of other tools under my belt now, and I've had a number of other friends and family members that have gone through suicide crises, and I feel better equipped um, mm-hmm. with different options to offer them and kind of walk with them through it. Um, but it's hard. It's super hard. Does your experience with mental illness, because you, you develop mental illness too, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I remember you said on your TED Talk, wow, even I, I am a psychologist and it took me a while to maybe admit or to recognize it in myself. Yeah, so that was a, a wild experience too. This was back in uh, 2012, so years and years after mm-hmm. my brother died. And my brother's death was a very impactful experience on my mental health. The, the trauma was was strong. The grief was strong. Um, but I would say that all of those experiences were, quote unquote, in the normal range of what mm-hmm. was to be expected at a very, very difficult period of time. And it was hard, but my coping worked. You know, I went to support groups. I took care of myself as best I could. I got back into the swing of things. In about five months, I was functioning okay again. Um, The thing that happened to me in 2012 was very different, qualitatively different. And, you know, today I can't even really tell you why it happened other than I had multiple layers of stressors. I had a physical problem. I couldn't eat because of jaw surgery. And that was a catalyst for, you know, not being well because I couldn't eat. I had, you know, relationship stressors and tons of work stressors. But for whatever reason, that that particular moment in time, that was the perfect cocktail of overwhelming things happening to me that my mental health just went down the toilet. And I remember thinking this is different than anything I've experienced before. I really did stop sleeping. I couldn't eat. I had, uh, it was very, very dark and nothing that would usually help me cope was working. So I couldn't get my, I couldn't get out of it. And what my brain told me was the only, cause a lot of it was work related. The, the way to get through this is you just work harder. So just work harder. So just work harder. Um, I also had a thought in the middle of it that someday I'm going to write about this or talk about it because mental health professionals don't talk about their own experiences often with more severe levels of mental illness. Uh, so I had that thought, which gave me the insight that I was going to, I was going to get through it. There's, there was going to be another side of the experience that I could look back in hindsight and talk about. But as you said, yeah, I didn't, I couldn't get out of it. And it did take someone else, my father, reaching through the fog and said, honey, you're not okay. You need to go seek help. And I was like, oh, right, that. Right. I should go do that. What did he see, Sally? Well, I was communicating with my parents because it was clear. Like I wasn't sleeping. I was losing weight. You could see it in my face, you know, very quickly losing lots of weight. Um, And I I let them know. I said, I'm I'm not suicidal, but I'm not okay. Um, And I also had the insight that while I'm not suicidal now, I could see how people could get there. It was such a torturous experience um, just to be totally revved up and totally despondent and agitated altogether. I could see that, you know, my experience was nine weeks long. It wasn't forever. Um, Sometimes people experience that for years and years and years. And so I got insight to that too in my heart that I didn't have before. It was in my head, but not in my heart. That has really given me compassion for people who live in that state for a much longer time. Yeah, so the two things that helped me out was when my dad said, go get help, and I did. And really the kind of help that I got was medication because I couldn't sleep. 
And so once mm-hmm. I was able to sleep again, and she gave me also some medication to bring down my anxiety a few notches, all of a sudden I could think clearly again. And my ability to problem solve went way up. So that was helpful. And then the other thing that happened is I went to the American Association of Suicidology's annual conference where I had a board position at the time and I was presenting all over the place. So all of these things where I had to throw this mask on and zip it up all together and do the thing. Um, But in the side conversations with some of my closest friends, I said, listen, I'm not doing well and I haven't been doing well for weeks. And they, they turned to me and they said very healing things. They said, we love you. No matter what, we love you. You don't have to do this suicidology thing ever again. Or you could fail at it horribly. We're still going to love you. you. We still matter to us. And those two things, um, getting my body under control again so I could function uh, and, getting and, support. In a, and getting support from a community that loved me no matter what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, those two things got me back on track. Let's talk about support because I find, I interviewed a few weeks ago someone who attempted suicide and he said, the moment that everything changed for me was the moment that I reached out because it is so shaming. Suicide is shaming if you have ideation, mental illness, there's so much stigma associated too. And you mentioned that in your family, you've always been very vocal and you talk to your dad and probably because you had, he had the experience of your brother too. So he was mm-hmm. more attentive. So what do you see in your work in terms of families? What helps when, when it comes to family and in, in giving them awareness that this is something that we need to talk about? Um, are you talking about families in bereavement or families who, where there's someone who's living? Someone with a, who's living with mm-hmm. ideation or mental illness. Mm-hmm. Well, I never want to say there's one way to do it because different families have different dynamics. But generally speaking, knowing that you're not the only family that's going through that is one of the most healing things. So to find other families like yours that are like, yeah, me too. And it's hard. Uh, can be very helpful for families to know this is much more common than we acknowledge. And families can learn from one another, but mostly just kind of stand in solidarity and say, you know, we all take our turns here. There's not a family that hasn't gone through a hard time. And if there is a family out there that hasn't gone through a hard time, I don't know who you are, but You've been very blessed, or or there's someone who's not being very honest with you, um, because it's just part it of- is so underreported, isn't it? Yes, I, yes. I was talking to uh, Patrick, Dr. Patrick Corrigan, and I, and I actually heard his name the first time doing your TED talk, and he was telling me it's one third, or at the most, maybe half of the people who with mental illness never come out. They never. Yeah. So it's underreported. We really don't know what the numbers are. If you want more information about suicide, my book is now available on Amazon, both in paperback and digital formats. Just type in the title, Understanding Suicide, or my name, Paula Fontinelli. The book was written for people like you, and it's the result of more than 10 years of conversations with families who lost loved ones to suicide, individuals who attempted suicide, specialists, and mental health professionals. Thank you for your support. Now back to the interview.
Well, and I work a lot. One of the things that came out of the calling thing that I was talking about is look, looking at the data and realizing that, you know, most people who die by suicide in the United States are men of working age. And most of them have never stepped foot in any type of mental health services. And when we dug into that more deeply, we realized that they don't see their distress or despair through a mental health framework at all. And by talking about it, they actually distance themselves from it. So like, no, I'm not crazy. I have a very overwhelming life. You know, it's outside of me that's the problem. It's not me that's the problem. And they're not wrong. I mean, they do live very stressful lives. So I'm also in a place now where I think about suicide much broader than just a mental health framework. Um, there's lots of social determinants to suicide. And it's, it's a both and. We have to support the individual and their families, but we also have to stop abusing people, um, giving them really toxic work situations, discrimination, prejudice, all of those things. We can give people therapy all day, but if we don't mm -hmm. cl clean up our environment, they're still going to suffer. Yes, and uh, you remember we used to, I mean, all of us who worked with suicide prevention for many years used the number 90%. Remember, 90% mm -hmm. of suicides uh -huh. are related to men. And we know that that's not true anymore. The latest numbers here in the U.S. show that 54% are yeah. not related to mental illness. So you have to look at the individual, the environment, what's going on in their lives, their coping mechanisms, coping skills, social skills, eyes, all of that. I mean, there's so much involved. So mm -hmm. just looking through the lenses of this is something that you take a pill and that's okay. Right. It's not helpful. So that, that would be my next message to families is that, you know, it's not often not what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you. So some trauma-informed lens as a first approach to this conversation, because sometimes families aren't aware that, the member of their family is going through this very, very toxic and distressing experience outside of the family. Or, you know, in the case of a young person coming out to a family member, they're worried about being harmed by that disclosure. So there's lots of other things that happen. Uh, and then the, the, the next thing I would tell families is least restrictive least restrictive. I, one of the things that I see over and over, especially when it's a young person, and again, it's understandable. I've gone through this too with a young person in my life who was experiencing suicidal intensity. I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to need to hospitalize. And I was reminded by some colleagues of mine who are also suicide attempt survivors, least restrictive, Sally, start Start with peer support, start with coping, start with building on their resilience and strength, start there these things have, they pass, right? Mm -hmm. The suicidal intensity passes. When you hospitalize someone against their will, it's, it can be a very traumatic response experience that then can prevent them from ever trusting mental health providers again. So go gently in that space. I'm not saying it's never warranted, but it can be very traumatic for people. So start with least restrictive and see what the response is. And sure enough, I did. And it, and it turned out okay. <laughs> but it's scary. It's it super is. scary it for is. family members. And you want to just lock somebody up so that they're safe for now. But you can't lock somebody up forever. They come mm -hmm. back out. And now maybe they don't know who to talk to anymore about this because they don't want that to happen again. So mm -hmm. you were talking about coming out and talking about your issues and mental health issues. How can someone, let's say you're talking to someone and say, well, I don't know how to talk to my family, how to disclose this to my friends and my community. How can they get prepared? That's the question. How can they get prepared to talk about their mental illness and their struggles? 
Yeah. You know, what, so this what is are another... the benefits? What are the risks? How mm-hmm. can they get ready for the backlash if there is any? Yeah, this is one of the um, core missions of United Suicide Survivors International. So I'm very pleased to share that we have some tools. We have one tool that's out. We have another tool that's coming. Storytelling is so important for healing, for building community, for eradicating stigma, for building solidarity and social justice circles, all of this. And people can share their stories just with themselves and it's still healing. There's this whole body of work called narrative psychology that talks about how we how we craft our own stories that we tell ourselves matters greatly on how we make meaning out of that or whether we continue to have shame about it. So thinking about crafting your own narrative, especially of going through a hard time, like a trauma or an experience with mental health condition is like a hero's journey. And when you start to frame that narrative under that kind of story arc, your perception of yourself goes from victim to survivor, from boy, I have all these terrible things that have happened to me, or I'm a terrible person because I have these conditions to know what I'm, I'm amazing. I am strong. I am powerful, which is a whole different mindset. So in United Survivors, we go through, get ready to tell your story, which is for people who are thinking about, maybe I'll tell my story to my friends and family. Maybe I'll tell my story in other circles where I can influence people around this. I want to understand this whole storytelling thing. And the whole course, the first course is really about what's in it for me. What are the potential benefits? Like having this cohesive and redemptive narrative where I get to own the pieces of my story and frame it as a hero's journey. Um, What are the potential consequences? You know, maybe it's going to be very triggering to go back in there and Mm -hmm. look at all those really difficult times. What are the benefits and consequences to others? And then getting ready by shoring up your safety net and your coping. And then if you're, if you're like, you know what, I would love to learn more about this. Then we have a second course that's going to come out later this year about safe and effective messaging and storytelling art which is just a whole nother world that's beautiful and powerful and amazing. Mm -hmm. How do you tell your story in a very impactful way? And then uh, should they want to craft a narrative that they do want to end up sharing with others, maybe at legislation or through the media or to other influencers? There are many ways, right? There's many many ways that you can get involved. But I have one question when it comes to, so you share your story, you say, okay, I have, I have mental illness. I, I've had patients, and maybe you have had the same experience, that there is a, a very thin line between incorporating that as part of your story or becoming the disease. Mm-hmm. They have their identity totally connected to the disease. So when you ask them, tell me about yourself, the first thing they say is, I have depression. Mm-hmm. or I'm, I'm bipolar, I take this medication. So their identity is so strongly related. So how can you separate and integrate these things and, but not be the disease because mm. there's so much more of you? That's such a great point. So in, in the second course that we'll be launching later, we talk about intersectionality, that who you are is very complex, intersecting, very dynamic. It changes over time based on your experiences. Um, This is one thread of an experience that ebbs and flows, comes and goes, intersects with other parts of who you are, that you're a very complicated and dynamic and interesting individual that's beyond any one label. Mm-hmm. So you, you are more than your disease. You're not your disease. That's right. Your, your disease is part of who you are, but not the 
the whole of who you are. That's right. That's right. What about the power? Because I do believe, and I've experienced this for since my father died in 2005, and since then I've been doing this work. And uh, I'm sure you've had the same experience. You come, uh, one time I was with some friends, and the moment you talk about suicide, there is silence. People don't know how to approach the subject. They don't know how to talk about it. There is a lot of shame and fear But then after a while, there is always someone who comes to you and says, yeah, I've experienced that. I've lost someone, but it takes a while. So this is one of the the benefits of sharing your stories because you become a reference and then it keeps, it's something that just keeps going on and on and on. Do you see that happening too? Oh, absolutely. It's becoming less and less so. I think this, the generations that are behind me are far more comfortable in talking about this. This is just a fabric of their life that, you know, a lot of their celebrities, a lot of the things they learned about it in school have been talking about it since they were in kindergarten in various mm-hmm. degrees, right? So it's not as, not as taboo with younger people as it is for my cohort and older. So like when I walk into a room of construction guys, that's where I feel that. Wow. Nobody, that must be hard. No, I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Because I know, I know from the data that either they have experienced suicidal intensity themselves or someone very close to them has, or that the chances are good they've lost at least one, if not several coworkers Mm -hmm. over the course of their career. So it's right there. It's right there. And I become like the trusted whisperer because mm-hmm. I, can, I know the construction world well enough that I can speak their language and earn their trust. And then I open the door to this conversation and exactly right, the me too's come. It just takes one of them to stand up and say, yeah, of course, of course I've experienced this. Who hasn't, you know? And then now it's game on. Everybody's feeling like, okay, well, I wasn't the only one. There's others here who have. And that sense of bonding over that shared experience is so powerful in such a stoic community where they are prized for their toughness and their resilience and their perseverance to say, we have, we have this shared pain and we can support one another through it. I read an article that uh, you wrote and you talked about the resistance of society to put together or even the mental health um, uh, professionals like us to put together uh, in the same room and have them work together, the survivors, those who lost someone to suicide, and on the other side, uh, those who attempted suicide. And you do that. How, how does that happen? Because even when you think about support groups, one of the guidelines is to not put them together because it can be triggering. So how do you do that work and what kind of results do you see? Yeah, that's, that was made clear to me in my early days that, oh, you can't put people together because people get their feelings hurt or people get angry. Or, and I was like, have we tried this? Because in my experience, right from the beginning, I saw at American Association of Suicidology, it was small back then, but there were certainly people who were out mm-hmm. and people who were collaborating, but it wasn't common. And so that was curious to me, like, why can't we work together? I I don't think in the immediate aftermath of an attempt or a death, does it make sense? Those Those are not needs that are being met in those immediate moments. But down the way, we can learn so much from one another. And our voices are more powerful together. So it's absolutely been 
a wonderful and fascinating experience to bring suicide loss survivors, attempt survivors, and not just attempt survivors, but also people who've had thoughts and feelings who haven't attempted and everybody who loves us, you know, mm -hmm. the, the large circle of, of allies and caregivers. I mean, there's so many different perspectives on the issues of suicide that we need to radically listen to one another to get the full picture. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to hear these stories and perspectives, but it's important. And, and when, my favorite example to share around this was uh, this leadership summit that we had in San Francisco a number of years ago, where a group of very powerful, and I'm going to use the word feisty, <laughs> vocal suicide attempt survivor advocates mm. um, got in a room together with a number of behavioral health leaders who were running large healthcare systems and hospitals and treatment centers. And they had a very honest conversation around fear. They were each afraid of each other. They were afraid of being hospitalized against their will and being punished for reaching out. And the hospitals were afraid that, you know, maybe they would lose someone on their watch or be sued or that they really didn't know often what they were doing. And it was such a healing conversation. Let me ask you something, because in Brazil, I, in the past, uh, I used to be invited to give the inaugural uh, class to doctors, I mean, to med students, because in Brazil, there was a lot of prejudice from doctors. It wasn't fear of losing people who attempted suicide, but more uh, the idea that why should I waste my time trying to save the life of someone and the life of someone who doesn't care about their lives when I could be helping other people? Mm -hmm. Does this uh, kind of discrimination and misconception happen here too? Oh, absolutely. Not as much with medical teams. It still does, but I, I hear it on the first responders sometimes, right? So there are police officers and firefighters and paramedics. They're putting their lives on the line every day to save other people's lives. And so it can be very frustrating, right? The, the compassion fatigue and the, the burnout to show up and like, you know, why bother? Why should I put my life at risk if someone is going to take it and put mm -hmm. me at risk as they're doing it? So that has been certainly some things, I, themes I've been hearing throughout my work with the first responder community. But I, I would also have to say that that is also improving over time. It used to be much stronger than it is today. But it's hard when that's your role mm -hmm. and that's what brings you joy and satisfaction in your work is saving other people's lives. And then here's someone who's going to take their own life. Mm -hmm. um, I, I hear it a little bit on the, on the medical community also. Same idea. You know, anybody who's in a helper role, they want to help. And they often feel stuck when it comes to this kind of situation. But the reason why I feel like it's changing is that we now know that these suicidal states, they ebb and flow. You know, there are people who have chronic suicidal experiences uh, and they learn to cope and have very meaningful lives. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of people, these are just like waves that come in and out of their life or often it's a one and done. They just have a very, like me, like a very upsetting period of time in their life where it's really intense and then problems resolve and people go forward. So there's many of us that are all about, you know, as corny as it sounds, you know, hold on to the hope that there's something on the other side of your despair. The truth mm -hmm. is we also know that post-traumatic growth is a real thing and that yes. people are forged into better versions of themselves by very difficult situations. That's often mm -hmm. what gets us there is we go through something very difficult and we learn things about ourselves and the world and our spiritual life that we didn't have before. 
Mm-hmm. One last topic, because I think it's very important. In the beginning of the interview, you mentioned that you are a person of faith. So let's talk about religion, mm-hmm. because it, it's one of those double-edged swords, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. It can be a protect, protective factor. It depends on where it comes from, if it's from a sense of community, if it discourages suicide, but not in a shaming way. But it can also be a risk factor. So how do you deal with that? I saw that you have on your website uh, a guidebook for Mm -hmm. religious leaders. Mm -hmm. What would you say to them? And not only to them, but to the religious communities that sometimes out of fear or because they have dogmatic ideas of right and wrong and it's a sin. But what do you tell them that can help the community be healing? Mm -hmm. Not only for those who struggle with mental illness or with suicidal ideation, but those who also lose people to suicide. Mm. Well, I'll just want to frame this also that the the faith community world that I belong to is one that really embraces a lot of the world's different faith traditions. So it's kind of like an umbrella faith community. So I get to I get to pick and choose a little bit of what works for me, which gives it gives me exposure to a lot of different belief structures and practices and so forth. And so that's been really eye opening. The majority of people have very rich and personal and deep faith lives. The majority of people have that in their life where it's a big part of their culture. It's a big part of their family. It's a big part of who they are. And historically, the mental health community has not done a great job of interweaving that into people's overall well-being because many of us were trained that that's too personal or that's not scientific enough or you don't want to talk about things like religion and politics because that's just too touchy. I, I don't know. For whatever reason, we just disregarded it, but it absolutely shows up in the conversation of suicide. So from a not so helpful standpoint, there are a number of the world's faith traditions that are very discriminating against suicide and, and suicidal people. Their, their faith structures are very pejorative. That, so it's assumed that people are in some kind of damnation. Uh, and that is so hard for the survivors. They, then, then in those situations, they not only lose their loved one, and all their loved one's life before that, they can no longer even acknowledge that they had a life, but they also tend to lose their faith community as a result of a suicide loss. So from a bereavement standpoint, um, many, many of the faith traditions have moved along, not all, but have moved along to really understand suicide, not as, you know, a quote unquote mortal sin, um, but something that it's only God's to judge and God is a you know a merciful God kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so so those kinds of communities are coming into a place where they are better able to hold the hands of the suicide bereaved without condemning them. Mm-hmm. Um, and another place that religion is not so helpful for people around suicide is when they cannot be who they are. So in LGBTQ communities or even in some communities around divorce or you know these other taboo things, they are they are shunned. And that, again, that loss, that loss of identity, that loss of community can be things that drive people to suicidal despair. Mm-hmm. On the positive side, it's a community. And it's a community when it's functioning really well, that really does pull together during our darkest days. It's a, it can be a very important place to go when it feels like the world is falling apart. And so it's been very interesting for us right now to, to watch all these faith experiences start to happen online where we can't embrace one another or come together, uh, but it's working. Like a lot of 
churches and synagogues and temples, they've pivoted to the online community and they're still providing that for people, a, a place to land mm-hmm. when it feels like the world mm-hmm. is falling apart. Um, there's a lot of tenets of faith that are really about examining your life and building a life worth living that's broader than yourself. A lot of faith practices that are just healthy and good, like sitting with yourself in silence and discerning who you want to be in the world. Like that's a pretty good thing to do every once in a while mm-hmm. or, or moderation in things or connecting with the awe of nature and the beauty of our world or serving, serving people who are worse off than you. All of these things help our resilience. Being and inclusive, right? Yes, being inclusive, um, looking out for your neighbor. That's a pretty universal tenet throughout all of our faith traditions. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of good just from kind of some of the core values and beliefs of a number of our world faith traditions, as well as just the practices of, you know, however you describe it, prayer, meditation, mm-hmm. um, you know, sitting in a, in a contemplative state and asking the big questions. It's good stuff for suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. Well, Sally, thank you so much. I wanted to, um, how can my listeners find you? Yeah. So I'm in all the places, most of the places in social media, <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, those are where I'm most active, uh, LinkedIn, less so, but you can find me there. My website is sallyspitzerthomas.com. I do have a newsletter. So if people want to connect with me there, um, you'll hear about upcoming podcasts and webinars and Twitter chats and the, the stuff. Um, I would love to love to get connected to your listeners. So um, thanks again so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm so happy I found you and I'm so happy you agreed to talk to us and to share, you know, your knowledge and all your experience in this area. Thank you. You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paola through her website, understandsuicide.com.